Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, capturing the fly fishing life, featuring in-depth conversation with fly fishers from all walks of life. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop, your source for all things fly fishing. DamianAndy.com, featuring custom music by Damian Anderson. Find out more at D-A-M-I-O-N-A-N-D-Y.com. Broken Tippet Fly Company. For blog and fly fishing apparel, check out brokentippet.com. And Wait For It Films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, visit Wait For It Films on YouTube or at thewaitcreativeco.com. You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Yeah, I mean, Evo, Evo kind of pointed it out. Um, on my first session, uh, one of the big things that stuck out for me was uh, playing the fish. And in hindsight, I wasn't playing them fast enough. So I was hooking them and I mean, keep in mind, we're using 7X. So, you know, it's a, you got to balance it out. But the second you hook these little fish, they're spending more time in the air than they are in the water. So I was giving them too much play. Whereas it, what I what I figured out towards the end of the session was strip, like you cannot strip fast enough. And just like as fast as possible and get them into the net. If you can aerialize them, aerialize them. Um, in hindsight, that cost me, like I still, my, that was my first session. I caught 18, probably had 45 on the hook. Hmm. So, so that made a huge difference and just being able to practice that moving forward, um, playing fish, but these are all small things and small adjustments that you, uh, that you take away from every event. And I think that's why we all go because every event we take something away or a number of things away that we can build on here and uh improve and excel on locally um and i think i think that's what uh that's what we all really like about it is continuing to push and develop uh ourselves and as a group um becoming better anglers Recently on the show, we thought we needed to get some more professional background music. So I reached out to Damian Anderson. Now, this guy is doing some custom kick-ass songs to help drive your content. Damian Anderson has got you covered with experience studying under multiple Grammy-nominated and award-winning producers. Damian provides timely and beautifully mastered custom songs that are the perfect fit for whatever you are trying to promote. Get in touch with him at www.damianandy.com. That's www.damian, spelled D-A-M-I-O-N-A-N-D-Y.com. Get ready for the 2023 fly fishing season with the Fly Crate. We have hundreds of trout, bass, panfish, and saltwater flies, ranging from the classic elk hair caddis to jigged Euro nymphs. Join thousands of other fly anglers who fish with the fly crate. Listeners of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast get 10% off their first order, plus receive free shipping on all U.S. orders over $45. Order today. 
go to www.theflycrate.com and use the promo code FLYFISH97 to save 10%. Bringing the biggest names in hunting, fishing, and the outdoors together in one place. The BC Outdoors Show, March 24 to 26, 2023 at the Chilliwack Heritage Park in Chilliwack, British Columbia. Fly fishing, fly tying, outdoor gear, lodges, fly shops, rods, boats, RVs, and much more. See you there at the BC Outdoors Show, March 24th to 26th in Chilliwack, BC. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us this time around. And we got an extra special show lined up for you this time around. We're uh, we're doing a little video, but we're also doing the audio as we usually do. We um, search out passionate people in the fly fishing space. And uh, you could say we've got a few. That would be an understatement on the call tonight. Members of the Canadian fly fishing team that competed in the Worlds at Spain uh, this past year in 2022. We, uh, we had f- uh, five members. Uh, Ian Troop and Byron Shepard could not join us tonight, unfortunately, but we have Colin Huff on the line out of uh, Chelsea, Quebec. Colin's a guide with Brightwater Anglers. We've got Kiefer Pitfield, a longtime competitive fly fisher out of Toronto, Ontario. We have got Chris Krischek on the line. Chris is out of Toronto, custom fly tire at Drift Outfitters. We have Evo Balanov from Smart Angling Canada, competitive fly fisher. And these guys have formed um, the Canadian fly fishing team. So much knowledge on this call. Don't know where to start. But first off, guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. Evo, thanks for helping me set this up. Thanks for having us, Mark. So you guys, did you guys all know each other before this comp? Like, was this, uh, is this a team that you kind of built over the years? Yeah, I think we've all known each other for a while. I'd be the newest addition, but, uh, I mean, I've, I've known, I think everyone here for probably at least eight years. Awesome. Right around that, at least. So. Yeah, Mark, there's a couple of iterations. There's, uh, uh, kind of a core group, I would say, in Evo, Colin, and Ian, uh, including myself that have been together since 2016 guys. Yep. That's the first time. Uh, Ian and I since 2008. Um, Evo and Colin have been on a few other national teams. It all sort of builds up from the regional to the national to the international level. Mm. But uh, that's kind of the genesis of this group. And Chris joined us, as he said, uh, in Spain. So, Colin, when exactly was this competition, the Worlds in Spain? What what time of year was this? This was uh, beginning or middle of September. We went to uh, northern Spain, um, and uh, we were fishing for uh, brown trout in four river venues and docked rainbow trout in one bank fishing session. Hmm. Now, had you fished personally in Spain before, or was this new? No, this was all new. Um, we have been practicing techniques that we knew would be very useful on these venues for a number of years. One of our uh, good friends, uh, Evo's uh, business partner, um, has been guiding us uh, for a number of years. His name's David Arkay, mm-hmm. or David Arkay. And uh, we've been uh, slowly slowly learning these techniques over the years really to kind of put them in place for this event going to the to the home waters of where they really got developed so that was uh it was pretty special to put all those techniques and uh years and years of practice into use 
so at this event. What type of waters were you fishing? Was there was there still and moving water? Um, walk us through that. Yes, a little there bit. Were, uh, it, yeah, it was four four river venues. Um, so four different rivers and one. I'm not even going to call it a lake. It was uh, it was pond the a pond for lack of better terms um, that was stocked very heavily uh, just prior to the event. And that was a bank, a bank session where you're casting from shore. Cool. So, okay. I, I want to ask Evo this question. Fishing for stockies sounds like, okay, so the, is this a different ball game um, for you guys? Like, I mean, if you're used to fishing for a lot of wild fish, I always think of Europe for some reason, because I know a lot of those uh, lakes are basically kind of put and take fisheries, but did you guys have to change your game much fishing for stockfish like that? Completely. Um, well, I mean, in this case, we were also having, um, you know, four river sessions and river sessions, even if it was stocked fish would be very different from fishing a, a lake from the bank or from the boat for that sake. But in, you know, in this situation, we also had that sort of wild versus um, stocked fish. And I mean, I, it was it was like night and day, honestly. Um, nobody was quite excited about the stocked fish venue, to be honest. It's just the uh, International Federation of Sports Fishing on the Fly um, insists that in all world championships, we have at least, uh, we, uh, we avoid a situation where there's five river sessions or five lake sessions. So they'll try and mix it up. So <clears throat> kind of... And I imposed on the organizers this uh, lake session uh, on on this pond with stocked fish, um, and that's how it came about. Um, but I mean, it it does add a you know a completely different, uh, I'd say, experience instead of skills to the competition. So in that sense, it's probably not a bad, hmm. not a bad thing. So uh, yeah, no, it was very. I mean, stocked fish, especially stocked rainbows versus wild browns. I mean, it's it's like night and day, and then you're there in a the little lake where they've been probably stocked the week before, um, in a place where um, I think that the weather conditions and and food and everything is quite different from here. So even the stocked fish were actually acting very differently from what they'll be doing in a pond here in Canada. So it was quite the that it was a, it was it was a little bizarre that little session on the lake. I find for anything that I've experienced, you know, yeah. with the fish with. We're staying high up at the surface. Um, even even after they got pounded, they never really went down to the bottom. They were just staying in the top five feet, and hmm. they were really really hesitant to take a fly. So you got to apply a lot of patience to to get one on, and very um, different from things we've experienced in other places. But luckily, we had our our Spanish friends and guys who had competed on that same lake, and they taught us a thing or two, so that helped a lot. Hmm name a couple of patterns that worked on, on those fish that may, may have surprised you or, or you might've gone, okay, I wasn't expecting this would work. Um, patterns. I don't think the patterns on the lake really surprised us. They were, uh, mops for the most part. Okay. Um, yeah. we, we tend to use them on, on the rivers here with, uh, you know, with a beat, but those were actually mops tied booby style. So mops with, uh, with booby eyes. Hmm. Um, it's the colors that were a little bit different from the ones we'll have here. Like there was a particular yellow, for example, that we barely ever use at home, but the fish just loved over there. I, I love I love talking to people that have experienced fly fishing around the planet because we think it's the same as it is in our backyard. And and the reality is, you know, there's the basics, but there's these nuances that it takes time to kind of get to know. 
I'd be curious, uh, Kiefer, Kiefer Pitfield, if you could kind of chime in here. Um, what was the biggest difference for you fishing Spanish waters to, say, the waters back in your kind of backyard? Uh, I, they were highly, highly technical waters. And when I, I'm, I'm speaking mostly about the rivers here. The, the little pond was a beast all its own and, and I think quite unique to that particular setting. But the rivers there were... Number one, they were very low. They had a really dry summer um, and they were stacked with fish. You could see them everywhere, but they were incredibly smart and spooky. The water is crystal clear. Um, so uh, the biggest difference was, you know, tight quarters, really challenging uh, flows relative to where you could position yourself to the fish uh, and super, super clear water. Hmm. Chris, what about yourself? As as uh, I assume you're one of the youngest on the team, if not the youngest. What was this experience like for you heading over there and competing? It was awesome. Um, I mean, I'd say it was nothing less than what I dreamt up to be. Um, like I said, I, I've, I've known everyone at least through competition or uh, through the shop that I work at for, for some time. So uh, it was good to be able to do it with a group that, you know, kind of knew that we all got along with and, and knew how to work together. Um, the fishing, I mean, to some extent, yeah, trout is a trout, but it, it really was interesting how different fish behaved in terms of their spookiness. The, the lake was, I mean, we fish a lot of stocked rainbow lakes and it was just entirely different. What we had to do for line sizes and leader lengths and fly spacing and stuff is, it's pretty cool to be able to see just how much you, you can sometimes have to adapt. So light, great. lightest tippet you had to use in that clear water. Did you have to go pretty light? Uh, 0.09 i think is as light as i had to go which would be the equivalent of like um it's like seven and a half x wow um but um i i think a few times there i, I did fish i got down to 0.08 so so 8x i'm not sure if it was really required uh for the most part but yeah fished a bit is it are we talking floral uh 09 nylon and floral so mm. dries and nibs Oh, eight, just floro. Yeah. I, it always amazes me how fine some of those tippets are that I think maybe, uh, you know, guys like myself are going to probably break off in a heartbeat. You know, you got to really know what you're doing and how to not kind of horse the fish and have the right rod. I would imagine how important is the, the gear in your mind? Like, are you using the same types of rods you would back home or did you have to kind of change your equipment a little bit? I was using the same stuff that I fished back home, but a lot of that was, you know, sort of thinking ahead, like preparing for Spain, I think all of us sort of got our setups more or less hammered out, you know, in the le in the year leading up, right? So we're, we're you know, trying to be well-versed with the equipment that we were taking over so we weren't being thrown for a loop. Um, but quite frankly, not terribly different from what I usually fish. Now, if I was out like where Colin was, like they've got some bigger rivers over there, so I'm not sure, like if that was my home water, if it would be exactly the same. Um but like the rivers that I fish a lot, the, the credit and the grand, especially in the early summer, they're, they're pretty Spanish-like as it turns out, maybe not in the fish, but in the water type. It seems to me like Evo, this core has been together for a while. Cause you, you had mentioned to me before we jumped on the call that um, this essentially is a core group that went to the Commonwealth in, uh, in 2016 and 2018. And, and in fact was the first Canadian team to medal at that. Um, speak to that so kind of the familiarity of of kind of the the you know the core of the team how, how important is that 
I mean, any any team and teamwork is is paramount in this. You know, as as paradox as it may sound, and in, in it, you know, that we think of fishing as a solitude sport, but in competitive fishing, you're not nobody without a team, without a good team. Um, this team first got together, I think, and correct me, guys, if I'm missing something. In 2016, for the Commonwealth Championship, and and in Canada, we all go through a selection process to end up on a national team. So we all went through the selection process and. You know, we were quite happy to be on on a team together. We we knew each other before. Um, some of us had been together on teams, others not. But we we fit really well. Um, you know, prepared really well. Went with a lot of enthusiasm in that. When it happened to be the first Commonwealth we experience that was hosted here in Canada, so on home waters. Um, so we got you know the comfort and the advantage of having it here at Mont Tremblant. Um, I don't think we were really thinking about medals and winning when we started. We're just thinking about fishing well and doing our best, working well as a team. And um, we ended up winning it, um, I think, with quite a leap to the second team at the time. Um, and it was historic for Canadian fire fishing because can Canadian teams had been trying for some time to to win a team medal at uh, major international competition. This happened to be the first one, and it was the gold. So hmm. we were really, really happy. Um, and um, Fly Fishing Canada came up with a rule that um, just because it, you know, it had not happened before and it's such a rare thing for us that <laughs> if a team wins a medal, the individual members have the chance, you know, if they wish to, um, to go to the next um, competition. So we went again as a team in 2018 to uh, the Commonwealth Championships in Northern Ireland hmm. um, and we managed to get the team silver there. Um, which happened to be the first Canadian team medal uh, at a major competition out of home. Um, so yeah, congratulations. quite happy about that again. Yeah. Um, the next one was a little bit different in the sense that, you know, even though we did well on these two, we wouldn't qualify to go together to the world championship, but, but we wanted to, we felt it was the time to, to go to something more challenging and, and frankly the worlds are a lot more challenging than a commonwealth championship you have the world's best nations which are mostly from continental europe there um so we all basically gave it a chance every one of us went individually through the selection process for for the team and we were all fortunate to be uh to make it on the team um and we got um you know a, a Fortunate to have an addition. Chris actually joined us as a as the reserve angler, but ended up fishing uh, because another guy from the team, uh, he's not here, Ken, was injured, uh, and Chris did exceptionally well. Um, so it, it worked out really, really well, um, and we ended up having Byron Shepard as a non-fishing team captain, and Byron's somebody with a long competitive fly fishing experience, and you know somebody that we've known as as um, as a friend for many years so mm -hmm. it was a really a really great fit ken even though he couldn't fish he joined us as a team manager and he did an incredible <laughs> job so a team um a team is really not only its fishing members um a team has the non-fishing members that are equally important and mm. and do a lot of work on the sides for the team's success um so it was a it was a really uh it was a tremendous experience we yeah. didn't win the worlds we didn't win the medal of the worlds either uh, we just got an eight spot, but for Canada, that was major. It was the best Canada's ever done. And mm -hmm. also we did it in, in continental Europe, in Spain, on what many consider to be one of the most technical and, and difficult world championships. So for us, it's a, it's a huge leap forward. And yeah. we're really happy to have done it. 
No, absolutely. I've had quite a few competitive anglers on the show, and I, I do remember talking to some members of that Commonwealth team from uh, just a year ago that they, with COVID, everything hit. It was so uncertain, right? We we're kind of coming through the tail end of that, but how close was it? Like, did you guys know the whole season, Evo, that this was going to happen, or was it kind of a wait-and-see thing? I think we had a few moments in the beginning of the season where – we weren't that certain. I not so much whether uh, whether it's going to go ahead or no. I think the Spanish had made their minds, but um, you know, people were wondering: Are we going to get another lockdown? Is it going to be you know safe to travel internationally again? Like, what's going to come up? Um, then the um, you know the war in Ukraine started, and you know, in, at least in the beginning of it, um, <clears throat> some people were starting to question whether they should be going to Europe at all and what's going to happen, which I mean, it turned out it was not a concern. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ultimately it did uh, work out well for us. Yeah, no, amazing. Um, I'm really curious. I assume, well, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume that you guys all spend time at the time bench. Um, is as a group, when you're there, you're like, okay, man, we are using Collins flies because that guy can tie his butt off. Or are you saying, let's use Chris's fly? Like, is there somebody that's kind of the designated tire? I'm just curious. As far as fly time goes, it was a pretty cool team effort. Um, we had hired, and we'll probably talk about, but we had hired um, a guide and competitive angler, Javi for uh, Javi Lopez, for uh, the time that we were there. And so we really leaned on him for a lot of patterns. Um, we all, I think brought a few that ended up working, but pattern wise definitely leaned on him a bit. Uh, but tying wise, we, we definitely did before the comp started make a concerted effort to kind of figure out, you know, what are we going to need and how much are we going to need for, for the comps that we can avoid doing too much of this serve admin work and fly tying throughout so we can get good sleep and, you know, spend our, our time wisely. And so I think the number flies that we cranked out in two days before the competition as a group was about 500 flies. Wow. That's not yeah. nothing. <laughs> That's not- it was well spread out. Like everyone, everyone certainly pitched in for something yeah. like that. So not many patterns though. Yeah. Just a few patterns, a lot of repetitions from the same. <laughs> well, I think, is that not kind of, if, if you could kind of say, okay, this is one way to up your game as a recreational angler, we tend to have a real diverse fly box no no method to the madness but when you start changing the sizes maybe colin you can talk to that a little bit how important was it that okay not only is this the right fly but it's in the right size it was everything um having a size uh, a fly a size too large made a diff a huge difference in a lot of sessions um your your uh hook rate would go way down um they would like to they would usually commit more to a smaller fly um not only did that mean you know that's i'm talking about dry flies but for the nymphs for example even making a slight uh change same fly but just a different bead color in the same weight um that made a huge difference for me in a lot of sessions after going through um a beat which is a section of uh, water that you have for that entire session once once i went through it once i would change same fly just change the bead color and i would get fish on that pass through and then come through again, change again. So having a variety of patterns doesn't always help. What you want is you want a small handful of flies that you have a lot of confidence in 
and a variety of weights and bead colors. So bead sizes, we we probably went from two millimeter up to three. We didn't go much above three millimeter. Um, and then just having a variety of, uh, of bead colors as well helped a lot. Hmm. Yeah, that's good input. So, and then you say between all of you, 500 flies in a couple of days, I'm sure. So did you take all the the materials with you, Chris, or was that, did you just kind of stock up when you were there? Oh no, we, we, we pack materials. Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we each have a briefcase that we take. <laughs> I, you're, you're not talking to the most organized person on the planet. So like, I don't know if you can see my tying. Not behind. <laughs> What's that? You're not either. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I, I picture you guys with a briefcase, just like somebody going to work. You know what I mean? Like, um, organized. Or I would think organization is pretty important, though, especially when your time is of the essence and you're trying to you're trying to catch as many fish as you can, basically. How important is that time management, Evo? Is that something you pay a lot of attention to? It seems to me we had this conversation maybe once before, actually. Yeah, well, it's it's in competition. It's essential. Um, you know, you can have the right patterns, right technique, and so on. But if you're not managing your time well, yeah. you know, at the end of the session, you, you're going to end up behind somebody who is fishing just as well as you, but is managing his time well. And then, in the world, everyone is focused on managing their time. It's it's part of the game of competitive fishing. So, I mean, the simple principle is keep your flies in the water. Uh, you know, present it the right way at the right place for as long as possible during your three or four hours of session. So, you know, everything else that you do outside of the water, you want to do as fast as possible. You want to tie, you know, change the fly as fast as possible. You want to minimize your false casts and get the fly right with a minimum number of casts. You want to be efficient when you're moving around um, on the river. You want to be fast in landing fish, but not too fast as to risk losing them. So there's a balance game there. <laughs> You know, and it, and it's and it tends to be different at every venue, depending on the size of the fish and how they fight. Even like these, some of these little trout call and love them. <laughs> and, uh, they just had a way of, of of jumping and turning around that made landing them a very interesting experience, even though they weren't that that big most of them. So you had to adjust to that and figure out the most efficient way to get them into the net. And, and then you, how you work with your controller, like how fast do you bring the fish to the controller to be measured and then released? Because this is all, technically speaking, non-fishing time. You know, any time your flies out of the water is time you're not going to catch fish. Any time your flies are in the water, even if you don't have the perfect presentation, you have a chance of catching something. So you, you know, you try and minimize, you know, make as fast as possible everything that you do outside of the water. Um, you also plan how you move um, uh, around your beat. Um, right. So in Spain, um, we had something unusual. We had super long beats on some of the rivers. They were over one kilometer long on, oh, one, wow. of, uh, on one of the venues. And um, we had four hours. And so when you look at one of those long beats, uh, you know, if you went to every single part of it and tried to cover it, maybe even in those four hours, you you wouldn't. Um, so you have to make some strategic choices as to where do you go first and second and how do you use your time to uh, to cover that bait? You know, do you cover some spots more than once? And so on. this is all I mean, this is all part of, of time management as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's uh, it's it's competitive fishing. It's it's essential. That's a that's a big beat. I often think in my brain that you guys really dial it in on a small piece of water. You've got to work it over until you figure it out. But a kilometer, that's a 
that's a lot of water. Um, how did you uh, find that kefir? Like, did you fishing those large, longer beats, larger beats? Does it? Do you have to kind of change your mindset a little bit? Like, maybe not be afraid to move on too quickly. Uh, we it's it's interesting here more than anywhere I've experienced, and perhaps it's because it was four river venues, and we're normally on you know one or two that are broken into different sections, at least in Canada. But here more than anywhere I've seen, you really have to develop a plan for each river before you even get there. And this is through practice on these rivers and each river, they'll all have similar water types, but not every river will hold fish in the same water types, or they might not hold fish that will take flies. They may hold fish in all water types, but you build a plan that, you know, for the, for an example, the river Trubia, fish would literally be almost everywhere. You have to cover every single piece of water for that whole beat because Mm -hmm. just the way that river is, they'd be everywhere. But if, um, let's say, uh, what was the other one? Not the Narcia, but another one where... Uh, Codal. Yeah, the Codal, as an example. Well, actually, the Codal, I think, when when the dry was working, which I didn't really have, you could fish the flats, couldn't you, boys? I didn't have that water. But in any event, there, there were some instances where you would decide because of practice to skip big sections of water um, or fish, you know, whether you're skipping water or you're going through a particular type of water quickly with, let's say a dry dropper and moving on. Uh, you build all that plan well in advance. You arrive at the river ready to execute that plan. And quite frankly, you don't make a lot of changes other than from, from a location perspective, unless you're seeing new activity you hadn't experienced in, practice you don't really change the location um, plan you might change you know bead color as colin suggests you might change fly size um, you might fish more dries than nymphs than you had planned or vice versa but but locationally you you, you kind of build the type of water you want to fish throughout practices and you stick to that plan uh, this is a silly question but when so if you're fishing against somebody are they on the beat at the same time or no so you have the no. beat to yourself? Yeah. So the way it works is a competition is split into five sessions. Right. A team is five people. You're split into lettered groupings A through E. So the five of us are A through E. We never fish in the same river on the same day or the same lake on the same day. So group A, which is one member from every team, goes to X river and so on and so forth. Once you're at that river, you're then given a randomly drawn section of water. Each angler will have over the course of several kilometers, each angler will have a randomly drawn section of water and you fish that over four hours. Hmm. That makes sense. So then at least you don't get too much of a leg up, you know, if you're, uh, yeah, I get that. It's, it's interesting to me how this all works. I find it fascinating. So um, if you had to do a single takeaway, Colin, of, this trip to Spain, this world championships, lessons learned. Is there anything that kind of stuck with you that went, okay, next time this is in the vault? Yeah. I mean, Evo, Evo kind of pointed it out. Um, on my first session, uh, one of the big things that stuck out for me was uh, playing the fish and in hindsight, I wasn't playing them fast enough. So I was hooking them. And I mean, keep in mind, we're using seven X. So, you know, it's a, you got to balance it out, but the second you hook these little fish, they're spending more time in the air than they are in the water. 
So I was giving them too much play. Whereas it, what I, what I figured out towards the end of the session was strip, like you cannot strip fast enough and just like as fast as possible and get them into the net. If you can aerialize them, aerialize them. Um, in hindsight, that costed me, like I still, my, that was my first session. I caught 18, probably had 45 on the hook. So, so that made a huge difference and just being able to practice that moving forward, um, playing fish, but these are all small things and small adjustments that you, uh, that you take away from every event. And I think that's why we all go because every event we take something away or a number of things away that we can build on here and, uh, improve and excel on locally. Um, and I think, I think. That's what uh, that's what we all really like about it is continuing to push and develop uh, ourselves and as a group um, becoming better anglers. Are these hooks all barbless? Out of curiosity. Yeah, all yeah. barbless. So small wild trout, aerial, barbless. That's not yeah. a recipe for a lot of landed fish. Well. Some uh, some Spanish uh, folk might uh, might say <laughs> otherwise. Maybe they're stripping faster. <laughs> uh, they they definitely are. Chris, what about you? What what would you say your takeaway was from this comp? Like you know, big yeah, picture. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's not the kind of thing that you can just show up to the next comp the next weekend at and say I'm going to do this necessarily. But I think I was most impressed by just the level to get back to what Eva was saying of efficiency that a lot of these anglers have and to sort of break it down even further in the, um, the thought between like fishing time versus non-fishing time, the trout and some of the rivers were being so finicky, especially about dry flies we found where, especially in the Trubia, I know, and the Narcea too, you know, two inches on your dry fly one way or the other would make the difference. You could get a clean drift, but if it was two, two inches too far off the bank, whatever, six inches, whatever it was, you get a refusal and you pop the next one in there close enough and you get the take. And so it really dawned on me watching Javi because, as I say, we had him to, to kind of show us around and show us some techniques. He'd be able to nail that cast first or second time. Whereas for some of for us, I mean, we're trying to cast you know, 40 feet away with, you know, a very long leader and get it within, you know, that close to the bank. Um, you know, maybe it's taken me four tries, which I still wouldn't say is too bad, but that's like half or a quarter as many good presentations as it takes, um, or as taking. And so the way that I'm kind of looking at now is that, you know, the Spanish, they're fishing a four hour session. I'm fishing a one hour session. If only a quarter of my casts are landing. So what I've really taken away is I really want to get to the point where I can get, you know, cast where I want it, when I want it. Hmm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Kiefer, what about yourself? Any any takeaway from this specific comp for you? Just further refinement on highly technical waters, really, uh, particularly with a dry fly. Um, you know, to Chris's point, putting it where you want it the first time, making sure you get the right drift, but also managing everything in between you and the fly is a big thing. Um, you know, these guys, the, the Spanish dry fly technique that we learned from David is, is it's hugely, uh, precise and you get super long 
sort of unmolested drifts from currents, but only if you put your line between, you know, your hand and, and the leader in the right place. Hmm. And you might be, you may actually be casting over dry land purposefully to have your line on dry land, which for me was a new thing, uh, to have your leader in the right spot. Like it, it was, it, it was a real eye opener, particularly on, uh, was it the nurse? Which, which was the, the last one I had guys that was completely blown out. Polonia. Polonia. The Polonia was, was a real eye opener. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you really had to manage everything to your body position relative to the sun, relative to, you know, your line on the water or on the rocks or whatever made most sense for to get in, getting the right drift. And, and these are guys, Javi and, and the Spanish guys that this, this hyper conscious sense of detail is second nature to them. And we, we got to get to that level. Well, you guys took a huge step. I mean, you think about it, how, how well you guys did there. I mean, uh, congratulations and thanks for representing the country so well. And I know, I'm sure it's something you guys plan on doing again at some point or like evil what are you what's your competition schedule look like for this year like do you have um different comps locally say in ontario that you're in um are you looking to compete again at, at the world's what, what's kind of next for you you know um mark we we are it's still a you know a, even though it's growing in canada competitive fly fishing is is still fairly um, small and sort of the groups of people doing it in different parts of the country know each other and I think what's next for me is really getting together with the other guys in the area and having a chat sometimes this month about our competition schedule Mm. Uh, because we all put a lot of time as volunteers and organizers to make to make this happen and and push it forward so um, but the one thing (laughs) we do know as of Last week, I think, is that the national championship will be at Mont Tremblant in um, June. Is it June or July? July. In July. Um, so that's one that we'll be all looking forward to because those are the same venues where we actually competed in 2016 at the Commonwealth. And I mean, I think most of us have done several national championships there. And I mean, for Colin and I, this is, you know, an hour and 40 minutes drive. So we do fish there we sometimes guide there and it's um it's a place that's um you know a little bit mixed feelings toward it because the river is probably one of the hardest rivers in the world to wait in mm. uh, but the area is really has a long history for it i think canadian competitive fly fishing so far we've had a number of national championships the first ever quebec provincial championship was there the commonwealth championships were there so it's kind of one of those places where, you know, for one or another reason, we keep going back. The local fly fishing club is amazing and have stepped forward to to be organizers for an event like this, which is a lot of work. So we're just grateful they're doing that. I'm curious, Evo, what, what makes that water so hard to wait? Is it is it the size of the rocks? Is it the slipperiness? What What is it? Um, it's both of these things plus a bit more. <laughs> yeah, no, rocks are, rocks are big in various sizes and it's granite, it's pretty slippery. I think it's a relatively geologically young river bottom. Uh, but also there is barely any piece of flat bottom where you can step in this river. Most of the time you're in a crooked position in between the rocks. And that's that's a pretty heavy flow too. You know, it's not a slow, it's it's not a slow piece of water. To add to that, Mark, there looks like there's flat spots and there looks like there's sand and there looks like there's safe places, 
but they're not. <laughs> so the moment you step in there, you're yeah. for, well. It's just imagine, know. just imagine like a bunch of uh, various sized bowl, lubed up bowling balls. Yeah, <laughs> all over the place with a heavy, heavy flow. I think you guys just described the Thompson River. <laughs> trust me, I know exactly what that's like. That's yeah, it's yeah. You, you are literally it's they're ankle breakers, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So Mark, when we fish when we fish most every river uh in the world, we'll wear waders as a rule and and try and have a, a dry rod or an infrod stuffed down our pants, depending on what you're you have in your hand. In this river, we we will not wear waders and we will only have one rod on us. Because you'll you'll slip you'll break stuff it's better just to start wet than eventually get wet wow yeah that sounds that sounds challenging in its own right how's the fishing is it tough fishing on top of that or um i mean you guys obviously yeah. did fairly well there it can be good it can be it, be, it can be really good it can also be a little bit challenging um being able to cover um you cover the river uh, and get across and fish water that a lot of people um, can't always get to is definitely uh, an upper hand. Um, mm. But in general, yeah, I'd, I'd say depending on the time of year and when the hatches are right, you can have some uh, really good days on the on the Diab. I'm yeah. curious, guys. Uh, maybe Chris, you can chime in on this. How do you up your game in the off season? Like, is it a reading? Is it videos? Is it is it at the bench? Like, what are you working on this time of year? Well, I'm still fishing a bit this time of year. Oh, killing uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, not quite in the same kinds of water or anything, but, I mean, I think any time in the water is a good time on the water to some extent. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's tough. I, I'm lucky I... Um, I'm a pro up at a place called the Franklin club locally, which is a, a private trout club. And so there's usually some open water there. So if I want to do some still water stuff, I, I generally can, it's not too far from my place. Um, otherwise, yeah, I, I tie a lot and you know, the worst case, if we do have a colder winter, it's, it's usually not a, a long off season here, you know, maybe two months of the year that you can't fish. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, rest and get ready for a new season. And, yeah. and that's kind of me. Yeah. Did you hit the time bench today? Uh, no, yesterday I did, not today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tell you, it's where we're at, like as a team, it, is that a bit of a disadvantage, guys? Because, I mean, you think about it, somebody that's maybe in a more temperate, you know, in parts of Spain where they're fishing 24-7 around the clock, even um, parts of Canada, we we don't have that luxury. What do you think, Evo? Um, yes and no. I think sometimes we kind of idealize the situation of others. Um, Spain does have a close season for spawning, and so they are off, even though it's not cold. The mm. rivers are closed for a certain period of the year. I mean, they have the luxury of traveling between provinces because there's always some open water. So if you wanted to, you could go, but um you know and then i mean they have they can have really hot summers with really bad water conditions and you know we were fishing the tail out of this this year but you know if we were there even a month before when this competition was we would have experienced some pretty dire conditions not good for the fish either so um you know everyone has their their difficult moments of the year and um i think we're pretty blessed with good fishing here yes i mean in the east of canada we 
I'd say between December and maybe March, it's hard, but at the end of the day, it's three months of the year. The rest of the time, you know, you can always find something to do and it's mostly good, good fishing. Uh, you know, even during the warmest of the summer here, Colin and I have a little spring creek that we can go to. So no mm. matter how warm it is, we can go fish wild brown trout. Um, and I think Chris, Chris and, and Kiefer have the same in the, in the, the credit, I think is like that as well. And some other, I guess a little warm. Yeah, but uh, hmm. you know, it's um, it's not really that different. I think the biggest challenge for Canada is that we're so big as a country, and that presents some difficulties for our competitive fly fishing scene in terms of organizing things and getting people together. You know, going to the nationals in another part of the country is almost as big as an expense as going to a competition in Europe for some of us, right? Like if we were yeah. to come to BC for the national championship, which we love, we love fishing BC. But, you know, you put the numbers together and it's not, you know, it's not that easy. And, and we're trying to have a coherent competition scene and, you know, select team members from across the country, get them to fish together, to know each other, like on the international team. So I think our size, you know, even though it's a blessing in terms of the resources we have, it's also a challenge when it comes to having a, you know, like a solid competition scene. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's... Uh... It's funny because it's it almost seems to me like there's a, a, a more eastern group of anglers and a more western group. I, I could be wrong, but that's kind of my my perception because it seems when I talk to people, they're either in BC or Ontario or or Quebec. But uh, I mean, like you say, there's a lot of miles between this, you know, the the oceans, and uh, yeah, de- definitely, I would imagine that would be a big challenge. And I the one thing I do know is that time and money kind of get in the way in a lot of things. Do you guys all have day jobs that aren't necessarily related to fishing? Kiefer, I'll start with you. Like, is fishing how you make your livelihood as well? No, it, it is not. Uh, so I've, I've got a full-time day job that what do you consumes work? the vast majority of my time. What do you work at? Uh, I run a division of an investment bank at a company called Beacon Securities. Oh, okay. So is it is it hard for you to find that time to hit these comps and the qualifiers and all that? It can be for sure. Uh, I'm fortunate that I've got. Uh, I mean, we're a small firm. We're we're kind of like a family, so I've got a very su- supportive group of colleagues, mm-hmm. and a lot of the fishing winds up in you know summer months, which is typically pretty slow for us. Uh, Spain was tough. September is one of our busiest months, but um, again, it's an understanding group, and you don't get to go to the worlds all the time, so. Yeah. Fair. Um, no, I'm, I'm really lucky. I've got a very uh, supportive uh, firm around me. That's awesome. Colin, what about yourself? I know you're with, are you still with Brightwater? So that's, yeah, that's my like part-time uh, guiding job on the weekends in the summer and the spring. Uh, my full-time job is I'm a sales rep at a Woodside agency. So we're a manufacturer of sales reps for brands of the likes of Sims yeah. Ray Jeff Sports, so Echo Rods, Lampson, Abel, Ross, and Airflow Fly Lines. Awesome. So, so there's no. And there's, so I do that for all of Eastern people. No lack of technical data coming from you on the gear. <laughs> yeah, I gotta keep brushed up on it. You know. I love it, uh, Chris. What about yourself? You're uh, you're also in, at Drift, are you? Yeah, I manage uh, Drift Outfitters, so Toronto's uh, only fly shop. And then, uh, you know, do a little supplemental instruction, uh, fly tying stuff. But uh, yeah, pretty well industry full time. 
Dude, between the three of you guys, we got a lot of gear options here. I'm just starting to realize this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to ask you best fly rods, best reels, because we might we might start something here. But um, sure, you could you could. <laughs> well, I, have no, <laughs> I have no doubt. But uh, that's the one thing that I I talk about a lot on the show, guys, because I'm an older guy, like f- mid fifties, and been doing this since I can remember. Every town had a fly shop. They were everywhere. You just said something, Chris, that really stuck with me. The only fly shop in Toronto. I'm like, how many millions of people live in Toronto? There's one fly shop? That is actually amazing. Huh. I, yeah, like, there's, there's been at least one for uh, probably since the 50s at any given time. <clears throat> but, huh. uh, yeah, for whatever reason, uh, the rest haven't stuck around. So there we are. I feel like the sport's growing, and that's something I like to talk about on the show. Like, And I think where the comp stuff is at, where, you know, with social media, it seems like our sport's in a pretty good space. What do you think, Chris? Because you probably see it every day in the shop. Like, are you seeing new people coming over? Are you seeing more women involved? or What does it look like from your eyes? Yeah. I mean, I've been in it a little while, but... Um... I mean, all these guys have been around the sport for longer than me, so they could, you know, they would have a better feel for long-term what the trends are. But yeah, I would say generally things trending younger, uh, seeing a lot more diversity across the board. Um, and just since we, we started, we're coming up on eight years old now. And, and just in that time, I'd say that the age demographics have come down. It is funny. There's like a weird little gap we find where lots of people like young people in their teens and twenties want to get into it. And they do, and they kind of fall off the map sometimes certain families, whoever, and we see them again, kind of emerge later thirties, forties. Um, but yeah, people seem really into it. The costs, you know, of entry have really come down. There's been a lot more, um, publicity around it just with, uh, you know, tons of great video content from different places, film festivals, that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. just opening people's eyes to it. So, um, I, I think absolutely it's in a great spot. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Um, had a little brain cramp there. I was going to ask Kiefer something, but Kiefer, why do you do this? I know that's a huge question, but I like to ask it like what, cause I know what I get out of it, but I think everyone gets something different out of spending so much time on the water. What does fly fishing bring into your world? Like what does it do for you? Well, there's a couple of different ways to think about it on the recreational and the things it's, I think it's the same for everybody. It's, it's, you know, where I go to clear my head, where the world makes sense every time, no matter what the conditions are or how you're catching fish or whatever the case is. Um, a lot of fishing in my world now is, is from a competitive lens though. So, you know, uh, for me, I was, I've always been a highly competitive person and, may as well marry the two things, uh, that I really love, uh, the most, which is, you know, fishing and then marrying that into a competitive aspect. So, uh, I took to that quite naturally, I think, but yeah, fishing is, you know, if I'm having a tough week or something happens, it's basically the first thing I go and do. What about you, Colin? Why? (laughs) No, Kiefer beat me to it. Um, I was, I've been fly fishing uh, since I was very young. Uh, my father had a fly shop in Ottawa. At one point, he's been competitive fly fishing uh, before I was born. Um, you could, like my uncle, uh, Donald Tom, I call him my uncle, pretty much is one of my main mentors. Uh, he's been competitive fly fishing. He's a vice world champion. 
Um, so, and my, uh, my mother's father was a fly fisherman as well. So, um, it, it was bred into me at a young age and I got started competing when I was 13. I uh, went to my first first youth world championships when I was uh, 14 in Czech Republic and been to a, uh, quite a few international events. And throughout high school, I was always like uh, very into sports, football, basketball, track and field. So hyper uh, competitive and being able to bring the two passions together uh, was just the perfect click. And then being able to do it as a team um, and continue to, you know, a get, get to see the world um, through the lens of our uh, fly rods um, meet incredible people along the way and uh, represent your country doing something you really enjoy. I love it. That's pretty, that's pretty darn well said. You don't have to sell that. You know what I mean? That uh, it sells itself. Yeah. Yeah. Evo, what about you? I mean, it's, uh, you, um, you've been doing this a while now. I don't want <clears throat> to, that's not an age crack or anything, but, um, yeah. you, you know what I mean? Why, why, why do you spend all this time? You know, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I'd say one of all of the things that, that, um, you know, Kiefer and Colin said, but lately I've been kind of thinking and going back to the voyages and giving a different spin, you know, why do we fish? You either have it in you or you don't, you know? And and you know it once once your father or uncle or whatever a friend takes you to the water the first time you go out there, um, you know if it's your place or not. And and from there on, it's probably a matter of circumstances. You know, if you have a good mentor, if you know your circumstances allow you to go back and do more of it, and so on, you can build on all of that. You can find all of these different aspects as to you know, diff, do you want to go do it competitively or whatever that um, you know. But at the end of the day. I think you have it or, or you don't. Uh, you know, in my case, I think I had, my father had it. He took me, I think the first time he probably took me out in the boat in the sea, I was two years old. I don't remember it. I remember my first memories from being five and, you know, fishing, not with a fly rod, you know, with a stick and a worm. But I remember very vividly doing that and doing it almost independently in terms of, you know, casting out and catching a fish and taking it off the hook and and enjoying it. Yeah. You know, and, you know, as I got older, I would like to start going on my own. And then I found this book about fly fishing. I was like, what is this? You know, and, <laughs> you know, there's, there's lots of circumstances that can take you, you know, your own journey can be different. But at the end of the day, I think if you don't have it in you, you know, you can push yourself as much as you want, but you're not going to enjoy it. It's not going to work out. And, yeah. you know, if it's part of your nature, that's what you're meant to do. I had somebody on the show that said it's not a want to or need to, it's a have to. <laughs> I think any of us that do it can relate to that. You know, you just, it's like, if I don't go, my wife's going to kill me if I don't go. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm just going to be like chomp, chomping at the bit. But uh, do you guys as a group communicate on a regular basis? So like uh, I, I, and this is just me because I know I talk to fishing buddies all the time, but I would imagine there's a core group of you that you're FaceTiming or you got a, a chat set up to say, hey, try this. How much is uh, that a part of what's going on? Kiefer, let's start with you. It's funny you say that. It's it's quite literally every day. We, we have a, a group chat on uh, WhatsApp and this core group of guys plus, uh, plus Ian plus Ken plus Byron talk every day. That's awesome. I love to hear that. Um, 
Are you talking patterns a lot? Are you talking like just giving each other the gears? What does that look like? Sometimes it's shooting the shit. Sometimes, excuse my French. Uh, sometimes it's planning. You know, we're talking about nationals. We're talking about uh, the next worlds and what our potential plans for applying there are. It's mm-hmm. about, you know, where we're going to train together this coming summer. It's about, you know, new products that are coming up that are of a technical nature and going to help us be more efficient on the water. It's 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 quite literally everything. Is there a... And, bi- and bicycles. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a bit of an inside joke. Somebody, somebody just bought a high-end bike or something? No, no. There's a funny video circulating that's uh, that's quite funny, and, and I was doing that guy's uh, accent and his bit the whole time in Spain. I'm a bit of a clown. <laughs> I love it. That's important on a team. Um, Chris, what's a material in the shop that people are reaching for these days? You're going, man, this is going to change your time. This is going to help you catch more fish. Is there something out there that um, you're going like, wow, I, I need to tie with this more? Definitely G4 waders. <laughs> <laughs> you tie in your waders? Okay. <laughs> don't forget to stand the boots too yeah he just went for the most expensive common ticket he could think of uh i gotta keep calling happy with it too um, hooks don't matter at all no yeah no honestly hooks are like whether or not they're new but i mean hannah hooks are impossible to keep an upstock of yeah quite literally um yeah, I mean the the full range or or near to it, depending on what the person's into, if it's lakes or rivers or what. Yeah. Um, not exactly a new item, but hooks like you know you give me the choice between a subpar hook and a subpar material to tie a fly with. I don't care what the fly looks like at the end of the day. Like I got to trust that hook. So, I mean uh, that's that's a pretty easy no brainer. Yeah. I, uh, I, th- I think so too. It's, it's funny though. We do overlook it. And sometimes I find myself substituting, you kind of sacrifice like, Oh, I'm going to go to this. And you know, you just know when you tie it, you don't like that hook as much. And you call Ivo or we come into your shop or we call Colin and say, you know, I know there's two Hannock dealers on this call. So <laughs> only one. Yeah. Oh, one gets, actually one gets their hooks from no. the other. I thought I bought now Ivo. <laughs> two, I've, two. I have ordered Hannock hooks from you. Have I not? Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm the distributor, okay. so I, I'm, I supply Drift. So I'm, I'm, I'm as as happy as I am. In fact, I'm happier ah. if you order them from Drift than from me. So the I like more, see more, more the, than there. Okay, see now I'm getting it. I'm getting the big picture finally. Took me a while. I love it. No, they are great hooks, and I, it seems to me like a lot of competition uh, guys and gals. That's all they use. Yeah. Hmm. Is that is that a thing in Europe too, guys? Like. Colin, has that been your experience? People tend to gravitate to a certain hook, like the Hannocks, or yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody it varies a little bit, but I'd say pretty well most of the top teams are are using Hannock hooks. I'd say, or their their own brands. Uh, you don't you don't see very many others. I mean, there was Napec for a while. There's a there's a couple that like. I don't know, Chris, you'd, you'd probably be better versed than I am with these hooks, but um, I've been using Hannock uh, for for just about as long as I've been doing it. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there are a lot of brands that are getting into it now, 
but I think the trust element is hard to replicate, right? Mm. Like I could probably name 10 brands at least of, you know, branded quote unquote competition hooks. But um, yeah, like, you know, if you're a competitive angler and you've been using these for years and you know, not just that you can trust the stickiness and stuff, but you like how they sit in the water. Like you like the wire weights, you like the gaps on you like the dimensions. Cause you know, I've, I've played around with like, uh, you know, I don't have this Hannikin's chuck, whatever. And I use this other brand and like just the dimensions are, it, it sounds silly, but they look like the same hook when you start and they don't look anything alike once you finish the fly. Um, yeah, I think it's hard to replicate that confidence. I don't know. Like, frankly, everyone else on this call would have better ins- insight on what the most popular ones are among other competitors, just because they know more competitors than me. But it sure seems like Hannock's the standout. Uh, Hannock's got the majority of the competitive market. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there is Dohiko, and there is uh, some models of Tiemco. I think are being used by some, and um, you know, JMC and, and about bunch of those but definitely if you're looking at what is most trusted across the board you know not just across europe but you know in in australia new zealand south africa like all of the states all of the company the countries that are competing yeah. i think definitely Connacht has the most trust i think uh, and there's a, there's a few models that are absolutely like like everyone knows that 450 BL is like the most trusted jig hook in the world probably and and no question about it, you know <laughs> and, yeah, and you know and, and 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 there's people that try that that are not competitors and have never even fished and they just come back and order it again and which says a lot about the you know the mm-hmm. hook itself there's something about its design and the way it's made that. Uh, is just trustworthy. It works. I feel like I've broken, so- too, I've broken too many other brands hooks in yeah. really important scenarios. I feel like it's something we don't talk enough about as fly fishers. Cause I know it, like you say, uh, Chris, you, you said it perfectly. It's you, you're not even going to tie it basically. If it's on a hook, you don't trust. Like, why would you, why would you do that? Right. And I'm with you on the gap on those. I really do like it. Sometimes I find some of the gaps too big to be quite honest, but I, maybe it depends on the, the pattern that I'm, and that, that is a bit of an art is finding the right hook for the right pattern. Cause every company makes one, but they're not all equal. Hmm. Um, yeah. quite frankly, most of the other brands out there are basically the same price anyways. So just, why you know can i think of it this way like think of the materials we have at our disposal now that we never had like tungsten can you imagine tying without tungsten and it seems to me it wasn't that many years ago there wasn't many people using tungsten beads what is that is that been your experience evo it's uh, well i already i don't know when it really started i mean for me maybe about uh, 15, 20 years ago, but I mean, it, it took a while before it became a, a mainstream, of course. I mean, the material had been known to metal workers forever, I think. At some point, somebody mm. realized that, uh, you know, this is heavy and it's it's worth it. It probably came along with uh, with the, the um, European nymphing, or actually it wasn't called European nymphing back then, Czech nymphing and Polish and whatever, that started becoming popular and people realizing that there's an advantage to having a heavier bead. And, you know, as it became more and more popular around the world as, as a technique and the tungsten beads came came with it. Uh, the challenge back then, Mark, was getting them in bulk at a good price. 
just mass production of them. Yeah. Well, and that's, I'm thinking <laughs> maybe that's why Evo started his business. What was the first product you had in there? You're like, we need to carry this. Just, we'll get back to the group, but just curious. Actually, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, um, it wasn't Hanak. We were, um, I was for a number of years, the Canadian pro staff of a Spanish uh, rod maker. Actually, first it was Italian that became Spanish called Maxi Rods. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we uh, set up Smart Angling, um, that was kind of the first natural look at, okay, well, wait, I'm already working with Maxia. Why don't we just ask Maxia to start to actually become the distributor for them? Um, and Hanuk was the second. Um, we were like, hey, we, we fish with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been using Hanuk for so many years. That's the one thing we trust. Um, and quite frankly, had no idea what Hanuk's going to say, but you know, reached out and say, yeah, Franta, like we're very passionate. We're just starting. We're very small, but that's what we believe in. We've been fishing and using your products and we want to try selling them here in Canada. And, you know, two days later, he said, yeah, you are our East, Eastern Canadian distributor. Mm, that's great. I, I want to ask you guys each this one question, and this is kind of a selfish question on behalf of my listeners or our listeners. Colin, one single thing that you could tell the average angler to say, hey, this is going to improve your game, what would you tell them? I would say, you know, nowadays there's so much information out there. um, But if you can find somebody, you know, get a good mentor, somebody who you trust, who, you know, is a good angler and gets, you know, has been doing it a while, um, you know, I think of how much I've learned from fishing with people that are better than me. I think that's where I gain a lot of knowledge. Um, so I would say, you know, find people, reach out to people, even if you don't know them, that, you know, are willing to help you and that, you know, might have more experience than you. Because I'd say 10 times out of 10, everybody's going to help you in any way possible to help you uh, better as an angler. So, yeah, I'd say I'd say reach out to uh, reach out to people that, you know, are better anglers than you and don't be afraid to ask questions uh, to those people. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to look at it. And and my experience is that you ask a question, you're going to get the answer. It's not like most people are like, well, no, I'm not going to tell you that. It took me 30 years to learn it. It's like it's a very open sharing community for the most part. For the most part, yeah. And, you know, there's kind of, I don't know, might be a bit of a stigma around competitive fly fishing that it's, you know, uh, you know, people are a little tight to the chest, but uh, it's not the case. Like at a lot of our events, we'll uh, we'll make sure that new anglers are paired with seasoned veterans and that that sharing component is always part of the event. And that, you know, there's always opening for questions um, to be to be heard and uh, talked through. It's something I talk about a lot on this podcast is there's always something to learn. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. There's always new stuff to know. Honing those observation skills. Kiefer, if you had to tell the average weekend warrior, this is what you should do to up your game. Um like you're in the investment business, make a good investment in your fly fishing. This is what you need to do to up it. What would you tell them? To layer, to layer on what Colin said, uh, and it's not easy for everybody because I get sometimes money's tight. But, you know, if, if I looked back 
when I started 15 years ago. And if I could hire somebody like Colin or Evo or Chris to take me out and teach me some stuff, that would be the best money you ever spent in the sport. Forget the gear, forget everything else. You will learn more in that handful of hours than you would for seasons, seasons. Uh, Now that's just jumping on what Colin said, because he already went there for me. It's keeping it simple. We talked a little bit about having confidence in your patterns. You know, if, if any one of us opened our boxes, there might be 500 flies in there, but there's probably four patterns or seven patterns. Hmm. Um, find those flies you're confident in, make subtle tweaks. You know, don't try and reinvent the wheel. It's really not that complicated, quite frankly. At a competi- at the high, high end of you know, competitive fishing, it gets kind of complicated, but their brain is this big. Just keep it simple. Doesn't seem to help me them having a small brain, but yeah, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Um, Chris, what about you, man? What would you tell the average person coming into your shop that's just wanting to get a little better? Um, so I guess I'll just continue on the game of yes and. And um, so, yeah, absolutely hiring or, or just befriending somebody, however you can make that connection, who's, uh, who's more experienced, because for sure that'll, that'll elevate your game. Yeah. Um, like it's just no question about it. Um, but then to build on what Kiefer was saying there about flies, depending where somebody is in their journey, I think it could be very helpful to start tying. Um, so simple thing, but like in the shop, talking with people, um, it's very apparent. We probably have just a rough guess. I'd say about two thirds of, uh, customers I interact with buy flies and the rest tie. And there's a pretty distinct difference in understanding about what flies are meant for, how they work in the water. Um, and some of the key design elements that just, it's very hard to pick up on if you don't tie flies yourself and interact with the materials. So I think that can help. I don't think it's a major, major thing like those last two points were, but I think it's, it's decent to consider. And the other thing is, if I was to pile on there, um, I might actually blank here, add something for a sec. Yeah, uh, just basic mindfulness. So something that you could just, you know, get going on on the first day is, you know, there are different approaches that people take to the water. And I usually find that people are there for one or two reasons. One, it's more of that sort of meditative you know, just get outside and enjoy it, which is awesome. And I go out for days to do that as well. And the other um, folks get out there are there to solve some kind of a puzzle and to learn. And I think if you go out with that second mindset and you're just trying to be in the moment and whether or not you know what you're looking for, try to be observant. Hmm. I think if you really go in with that mindset and try to be observant about anything, whatever it is, just the ecosystem around you that you're interacting with, that will up your game for sure. Yeah. Good stuff. Evo, what about yourself? How do we get better? Um, How do we get better? Yeah. All the, all was said already, uh, but one thing that I found really propelled me forward is that, you know, at some, at some point I started, I realized that the fish are, or some fish are feeding in just about any condition. And anytime you're out on the water, fish are catchable. And if you're not catching fish, stop looking for excuses in the moon phase or the water being this or that or the weather or the pressure and ask yourself, what did I do wrong today? And what can I try differently the next time? Like the moment I, I you know, I, I 
change my own mindset around this. And I was like everyone else, you know, I had a diary. I was looking at the moon phase and this and that and seeing to see how obviously it, it matters, you know, all that matters. But, you know, even on the poorest day, there will be the odd fish feeding. And if they are, they're catchable. Um, and so, and most of the time, the conditions are much better than you think. And you realize that when you fish with somebody that's much better than you and you realize damn near I caught two fish here and this guy just pulled out 20. So it's possible, right? Um, so, you know, swallow your ego and ask yourself every time, what did I do wrong today and what can I do better tomorrow? I got out with John Wilkinson last year and that was my experience. How can I do that? Yeah, yeah. I feel that. Well, guys, look, I really want to thank you all for, for taking the time today and uh, telling your story. Um, we've got uh, five members, four members, sorry. We've got four members on the line from uh, Team Canada, from the Canadian Fly Fishing Championships, uh, from the Worlds in Spain. Uh, best ever showing by a team from Canada. And, of course, uh, the core group medaled at the Commonwealth Championships as well in 16 and 18. A wealth of information. I want to thank you guys for doing what you do, sharing and uh, passing your knowledge on to our listeners and to uh, people in the shop and on the water every day. Um, Evo, Colin, Kiefer, Chris, thank, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Okay, thanks, guys. Mark. Thanks, thanks for giving us a forum. And, uh, you know, one thing we want to all say is that anyone that wants to try competitive fishing is more than welcome. We, we're a very welcoming crowd. We, we'd like to grow. Uh, we want to bring people over and show them that um, it's actually a very friendly and good experience, contrary to what they may hear by somebody else who's never done it. Um, it's great. Give it a try. You'll be welcome. Yeah. If, if anybody wants to reach out, Evo, um, Smart Angling, is that the best place to get a hold of you? Um, a few or... different places. I mean, not only Smart, there's Drift, Drift in Toronto. Um, yep. Colin's got Brightwater Anglers. Um, we also have a, uh, at least the, uh, in our part of the world, we do have a Facebook page for the Eastern Canadian Competitive Fly Fishing League, where we post uh, announcements on forthcoming events, or people can even send us messages there and ask what's happening in our part of the the world i think the alberta fly fishing league has one as well and so does bc uh, those are the three main uh, sort of bigger groups in the country uh, they all organize their competitions they're all very welcoming i think they all want to grow and bring new people in so you know the information and the contacts are out there awesome and, and mark there's there's probably not a fly shop that hasn't come into contact with one of the regular competitors. So if somebody's out there listening and wondering how they can do it, just ask the guys at the fly shop. They know. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, powered by theflycrate.com, your source for all things fly fishing. Wait for it films featuring fly fishing videos and camera related content, custom music from Damian Anderson and by brokentippet.com.